Well, thanks, Renee and Louise. I love the uh, verse in that song that goes, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. So that's really how we know how great our God is. It's when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, right? The greatest act of love that has ever, that has ever been done. And so we never need to um, question, right? We never need to question the greatness of God. We never need to question the love of God. We never need to question the goodness of God because he bled and died to take away our sin. Amen. So that's who we come to worship uh, tonight. We come to worship our Savior, Jesus. And uh, if you've been with us uh, this month, last uh, Wednesday, we've been going through Galatians. So if you have a Bible, if you like to follow along in your Bible, physical Bible, electronic Bible, whatever you got, we're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 5 this evening. And uh, you know, on Sundays, of course, we've been going through the book of Acts and Acts 13 to 15, and even the beginning of chapter 16, which we'll be looking at this uh, coming Sunday, has to do with Paul's journey in the Roman territory of Galatia, which of course has many cities that Paul visited there. And uh, after he got back from his first missionary journey, Paul wrote a letter that was supposed to circulate amongst all these cities in the territory of Galatia, and that's why we call the letter Galatians. Because uh, its primary original audience, people who would have heard it, were people who lived in the territory of Galatia. Now, last uh, Wednesday, we looked primarily at Galatians chapter 3 and 4, which had to do with Paul's theological justification of why the Galatians did not need to submit, the Gentiles did not need to submit, or anyone really, but especially the Gentiles, did not need to submit to circumcision and why they didn't need to uh, obey the law of Moses in order to be saved, like some of the Pharisees and some of the Judaizers were saying. And Paul's like, no, that is all wrong. That's a misreading of the Old Testament. Let me give you the Holy Spirit-inspired reading of the Old Testament of, of why that's not the case. Well, so that was all focused on grace. And really, the last couple chapters of Galatians, which we're going to look at tonight, chapters 5 and 6, is really all focused around the theme of graciousness. Um, that though we are free in Christ, we must offer ourselves to the Holy Spirit rather than to the flesh. And when we do that, when we offer ourselves to the Holy Spirit, what it means is that we'll begin to serve one another through love. So here's the thing. We're not set free by Christ in order to serve the self. In fact, that's not a, any freedom at all. But we're set free by Christ in order to love like he loves. And so the gospel of grace doesn't produce selfish, self-absorbed, fleshly people. The gospel of grace produces loving, other-minded, selfless people. So let's turn. We're not going to look at every verse in chapters 5 and 6. Uh, but we're going to hit uh, a lot of them. And I want to pick up in chapter 5, verse 13. And Paul says this, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity 
for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, a few verses after this, we'll get to it, Paul describes what a life controlled by the flesh looks like, and then after that, he shows us what life controlled by the Spirit looks like. And, and Christian liberty, he says, it's not a license to gratify the desires of the flesh. Rather, it's the opposite of that. It is a freedom from being enslaved to the flesh and an ability to walk in newness of life, empowered by Christ's own life inside of us. Like he said in chapter 2, I have been crucified. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me, right? It's an empowerment to live by the indwelling Christ, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit. So true freedom is not autonomy. That's how I think a lot of people in 21st century Western world think of freedom. They think of freedom as autonomy. But that's not what biblical freedom is. It's not living for self. In biblical terms, that's really a form of enslavement. But true freedom in the biblical sense is being yoked to Jesus and being led by the Holy Spirit. For that is how God has always created us to live. And that's the only way we will ever flourish as we are dependent creatures upon God. That's the only way we will ever be free, because that's how God designed us, to be dependent on God, to be led by the Spirit. When we become fleshly or autonomous in the self and led by our own desires, well, that's just bondage. So what is this liberty, you know, it ties back, in fact, to what Paul writes at the very beginning of this chapter. Let's read that in, in verse uh, 1, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Stand fast, therefore. This is right after he gives his great theological justification of grace, in chapters 3 and 4. And then his charge is this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. What are you talking about there? The circumcision, outward observance of the Mosaic law. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. What are you doing? You're, you're trusting in the flesh there. Verse 3. Their understanding of circumcision. Verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified are made righteous by law, you have fallen from grace. Because the only way you're justified before God in the courtroom of God is how? It's by grace. It's by unmerited favor. It's by the blood of Jesus. Paul gets in-depth into that in the book of Romans. So the liberty Paul is speaking of has to do with being freed from a yoke of bondage, in particular, following specific ceremonial aspects of God's law, like circumcision. Paul speaks about how we are not under law, but rather under grace, and that those who seek circumcision have fallen from grace, and they're enslaved again to what God in Christ has already fulfilled for them. So, stand fast in your liberty. And this is what verse 13 was all about, right? You have been called to liberty. So, because you have been called to liberty, take a, a, a hard stand where God has put you. You know, the perverted sense of liberty, like we, we talked about, the perverted sense of liberty is thinking liberty means a liberty to indulge the flesh. This is how 
the NIV puts Galatians 5.13. But a true sense of liberty, as Paul goes on to say, is not indulging the flesh. A true sense of liberty is serving one another through love. That word indulge, the flesh, is really a very graphic Greek term. It's sometimes translated best as a base of operations for. So I'm going to read the JLM translation. It goes like this, Galatians 5.13. Do not allow freedom to be turned into a military base of operations for the flesh, active as a cosmic power. On the contrary, through love, be genuine servants of one another. Do not allow freedom to be turned into a military base of operations for the flesh. You know, here's the thing. We are always controlled by something, right? We are always under the influence of something or someone, either the flesh or the spirit, either the law or Christ. We have been freed from the yoke of law, not so we can indulge the flesh, that's bondage. Rather, we have been freed from the yoke of the law so we can be yoked to Christ, which is freedom. In fact, one, one of the best ways to understand what a Christian is, is that we are bond servants of Christ. You know, all the people who wrote letters in the New Testament, every single one, I'm pretty certain. Uh, Paul, I know, does it several times. He introduces himself as a bondservant. Peter does it. He introduces himself in his letter as a bondservant. James does it. Jude does it. John doesn't do it in his letters, but he does it in the beginning of Revelation. They all introduce themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. That's how they understood liberty, right? Um, <laughs> they, they understood that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that we are his disciple. We are, are called to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. His yoke is an easy yoke. His burden is, a, is, is light. In, in obedience to Jesus and following the Spirit is crucial if we're ever going to experience freedom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, it's like uh, he came to give us life and life more abundant. Well, how do we experience that? We experience uh, that as we follow the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, as we're yoked to Jesus Christ. You know, all these, uh, all these men who introduce themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ, they're getting that idea from the Old Testament in Exodus 21. This is right at the beginning of what's known as the Book of the Covenant, right after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. In Exodus 21, 22, 23, and 24, he gives what's really the first part of the law, that was ever given. It was given at once in those, those four chapters. It's, it's known as the Book of the Covenant. And at the very beginning of the Book of the Covenant, it talks about servants or slaves. And this is um, what it says in verse 5 of chapter 21. If the servant plainly says, um, I love my master. Now this is after he's served for six years, so he's kind of like an indentured servant. Then he's uh, he's able to go free. But then it says this, after he has rightly earned his freedom, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl 
and he shall serve him forever. You know, that man was wanting to be not just an uh, indentured servant for six years, he was wanting to be an eternal slave for his master, willingly, freely. Why? Because he knew being an eternal slave to his master was far better than being freed and living on his own. In fact, a lot of times, slavery in the ancient world, a lot of times, if you had a good slave master, you were a lot better off than if you were free. You were taken care of, you had better living circumstances, if you had a good master, right? Some people didn't have good masters. But in this case, there were actually a lot of people who would follow through with that law. Well, what do we do as, as, as um, freed people in Jesus Christ? We understand, wait a second, I've been freed now to belong to my master, right? He who is the Lord's freedman is his slave, as Paul puts it in, in, in Colossians, I mean in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And so we belong to Jesus. We are his bondservant, and that is what truly makes us free. Look what it goes on to say in Galatians 5, verse 14. For the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, a Torah scroll, which is Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, it has 79,847 Hebrew words. And Paul says that entire Torah scroll can be summed up in one word. Love. And when, when the Bible talks about the Torah being written on our hearts, well, we can say that the primary thing that God wants written on our hearts is what? It's love. The God kind of love, right? Not the worldly kind of love, not the indulgent, selfish, sin-affirming emotion that passes for the world, you know, for love today. No, God is after something far more strong written on our hearts, far more holy, a love that, that, that seeks to see people made whole inwardly, outwardly, emotionally, in every way. Biblical love seeks to see one free and alive in their creator, just as he has made them. Biblical love looks to the cross of Jesus Christ. It sees the creator of all things dying for the sins of the world, dying to pay the penalty of our sins, dying to free us from the power of sin. And it seeks to show that same sort of love that God has shown us in Christ Jesus, right? That's what he wants written on, a, on our hearts. Love. And all the law can be fulfilled in us and even superseded when we follow the command of love. Love of God and love of our neighbor. For when we are filled with God's love in our heart, we will inherently do the things the law says that we ought to do. For instance, what's the fifth commandment? Anyone know? Honor your father and mother, right? It's the first commandment with promise. It's repeated in Ephesians chapter 6. Why? It's good, holy, and just. We should all honor our father and mother. Well, guess what? When the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't just think, oh man, I got to honor my father and mother. We think, oh, I am empowered and I get to love my honor father. God gave me a mother and father. I'm so grateful for that. Now I get to honor them. When the love of God is poured out in our heart, and the sixth command, what is that? Do not kill. And now we, we think, wow, I can go beyond do not kill. Now I don't have to hate my brother in my heart because God loves that person and died for them. How about the seventh commandment? Shall not commit adultery, right? And you think, okay, 
I love my wife so much now because the love of God poured out in my heart and he shows me how much I love my wife that I don't even want to lust after another woman, right? Or think about it in a spiritual sense. I don't even want to lust after other gods. I don't want to commit some sort of spiritual idolatry, adultery, right? And, and you could go on and on with the commandments that, that love takes it to a no, another higher level. This is why the law is fulfilled in love. Well, look what Paul continues to say in, in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, you know, we are liberated in order to be led. How do we love our neighbor as ourselves instead of biting and devouring them? The answer, Paul says, is by walking in the Spirit. Right? It is the Spirit who enables you to serve one another in love. Right? We stand fast in our liberation when we deliberately every single day choose to walk in the Spirit. When we deliberately every, every day choose to understand Jesus' statement, I will be with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? When we understand that we have been made children of God and the Spirit has come into our heart. Galatia, he, he wrote this in the earlier chapter, in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Right? The Christian has two paths down which it can choose to walk. One is the path of the Spirit, the other is the path of the flesh. One is a journey of faith, the other is a journey of feelings and of lusts. But to be led by the Spirit means that we have graduated from the law. We're no longer children, kept in bondage under, under a, a guardian and, 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 a, and a jailer. No, we're living the life God has always intended us to live by His own resources, His own life, which has been poured out into us. We are children of God, and we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 18 again, it says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Right? Um, instead of just the law demanding outward obedience with no inward affection, the Spirit now causes us to love from the inside out. Being led by the Spirit is powerfully demonstrated for us in the story of the Israelites when they're freed from the land of slavery, from sin, from bondage, from Pharaoh, the devil, right? When the moment, the exact moment they are liberated and they come out of their bondage on Passover, you know what happens immediately after that? The Spirit of God leads them, right? They have been liberated so they can be led. And as they're being led, they're being shown, you know, that they're no longer to have a slave mentality. They're, they're supposed to have the mind of the Spirit. Look what it says in Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. What is this saying? God's presence was always 24 hours a day. For 40 years in the wilderness, 
always before the Israelites, during the, every hour of the day, during every hour of the night, right? And so if the Old Testament saints had this sort of picture of them always before them, how much more you and I, right, who have received the Spirit in our hearts? We should regularly throughout the day take time to acknowledge the presence of the Lord. In fact, when we do that, right, when we trust in the Lord with all of our heart <laughs> and lean not in all on our own understanding, our flesh, but acknowledge Him in all our ways, what does He say? He will direct our steps, right? That's just a passage again of bringing out what it means to be led by the Spirit. Bring everything to God in prayer. That's why Paul says to the Thessalonians, pray at all times. Bring every situation, every frustration, every relation issue, right? Say, God, help me. Uh, direct me. <laughs> help me be humble. Help me be wise. Help me be loving. That way, when we do that, you know what? You won't react according to the flesh. You'll react according to the Spirit. Now, in the next section of Galatians, Paul contrasts the flesh and the Spirit. He first talks about the flesh, and he gives 15 words in, in Greek. It's 17 words in our English Bible to explain the flesh. Almost twice as many words he gives to explain the Spirit. And it's not uncommon for Paul to give long lists of the flesh in his various letters. Why? He's helping Christians identify things that are sinful and contrary to the Spirit-led life by giving examples. So let's read the examples he gives. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, or other translations say, are obvious, are clear, right? And the more you're in tune with the Spirit, the more clear that they are works of the flesh, which are this. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul he gives a, a similar list like that, and he says the same exact thing at the end in 1 Corinthians 6, but he, he even adds more things here. He, so the works of the flesh, it's not just the 17 things listed here. It's, it's quite expansive, as he says, and the like. So let's just look at them real quick. The first, he says, adultery and fornication. In the Greek, that's just one word, pornea. Um, and it is a word that can refer to unfaithfulness in marriage, sexual activity with a prostitute, or just general promiscuity. And that heads the list, as sexual sins tend to head the list in a lot of these um, things. And, of course, because it, it shows our, our relationship with God is, 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 is compared to marriage as well, right? So just as, like, idolatry is at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, so sexual immorality is the beginning of a lot of the works of the flesh. Uh, and, again, that's one of the most self-serving things, right? That's a, that's a great battle, is the sexual battle. Two, it, 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 it continues in this category of sexual sins. Uncleanness means vicious immorality, vileness. Being unclean is how many Jews would sum up the Gentile life or life without God. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 19. 
who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Life outside of Christ, ungenerate life, is not a life that's pictured as mostly good, but rather as a life that is captive to sins of the flesh. Whether it be civilized flesh, hidden flesh, or outright riotous flesh, life outside of Christ can only be made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it can only be sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. The third thing he lists is lewdness. What is lewdness? It's shocking public indecency, a lack of self-control, actions trying to communicate some sort of sexual permissiveness, right? Um, the sort of lewdness and lustfulness is condemned throughout Paul's letters. Don't make yourself uh, one who uh, appears to be sexually uh, available or inviting. I think that's actually probably partly what Paul is trying to communicate when he's talking about head coverings in 1 Corinthians 10. I don't have time to talk about that, but let's look at what Titus 2 says. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what the grace of God teaches us, right? Teaches us not to be lewd, uh, uh, but to be uh, sober and righteous and godly. All right. Now, while Paul only gives three words to describe sins of the flesh that are sexually oriented, he also adds a lot of other words in some of his other lists, things like um, incest in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, things like, um, you know, uh, sexual sins of those committed between the same sex. He gives two words uh, for the passive and active partner in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, the New Testament makes very clear that the only holy sexual action outside of a loving sexual relationship between a husband and wife um, is a sinful work of the flesh. So you could add other things even the New Testament doesn't mention, like bestiality. That would be a work of the flesh, right? You don't have to be, <laughs> don't have to be too holy to recognize that, right? Okay? That's why he says, and the like. Like there's a lot of other things, and you guys... By the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, you should understand what these things are. You're not stupid. God made things in the world to make sense, right? The world is a sensible world. Now, the, now the, world will, the world, the evil world controlled by Satan, will want to tell us that God's good world does not make sense, but it does make sense. The second uh, category of the works of the flesh are sins against true worship, so idolatry, worship of false gods. In Colossians, Paul calls greed idolatry. So does Jesus. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Paul told Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil, which again, that's covetousness. Holding on tightly to financial security, greedily hoarding for ourselves is one of the primary forms of idolatry that's condemned over and over in the New Testament. It is fleshly. We are to keep ourselves from idols, as John says. The next thing he mentions is sorcery, witchcraft. In the law, witchcraft was so grave that it was given capital punishment. At the end of his life, King Saul had become so fleshly that at his utter low point, he sought out the witch of Endor, right? <laughs> People are always looking for supernatural help. And if they don't go to God, they will engage in demonic activity. And uh, those beings will be glad to fancy them, right? Absolutely. So that's a work of the flesh. 
Thank God Jesus died for all those sins too. He died for all the sexual sins we just talked about. He died for the idolatry, the covetousness. He died for the witchcraft. Aren't you glad when the sun has set free? <laughs> the third category are sins against love and unity. So he talks about hatred. Someone openly hostile and at enmity. Um, he talks about contentions. A readiness to quarrel, a contentious spirit, biting and devouring one another, as he talked about earlier. He talks about jealousies, resentment against a rival. Paul talks about this a lot in 1 Corinthians 3. I am of uh, Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, you know. He, he mentions outbursts of wrath. Outbursts of wrath is a Greek word that's thymos, which means getting heated up and breathing violently. Anyone here ever got heated up and breathed violently? I have before. You know what that is? That's a sin of the flesh. That's walking in the flesh, right? Um, that's an outburst of wrath. It's not good. Look what Colossians 3.8 says. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Other, other works of the flesh, right? Uh, aren't you glad that God uh, died for uh, outbursts of wrath? I am. So I can be free from that. I can walk in the spirit. Uh, number 10, selfish ambitions. Acting for one's own gain. Dissensions. Divisions. It's, what does the spirit bring? He brings unity. What do the works of the flesh bring? Dissensions. Number 12 thing he lists is heresies. Now in Peter's letter, second letter, he talks about how false teachers in the churches secretly bring in destructive heresies and even deny the Lord who bought them. That's probably similar to what these Judaizers in Galatians are doing. They're denying the Lord who bought them. And all heresy is a work of the flesh. Uh, Thirteen, uh, envy and murder. It's actually one word in Greek. You know, envy and murder are connected throughout the Bible. Cain envied Abel, so what did he do? He murdered him. Joseph's brothers envied Joseph, so what did they do? They wanted to murder him, but Judah said, um, guys, we can make some money. Let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites, right? But envy leads to murder. But what is love? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says love does not envy. The last category of sins he talks about are sins against self-control. So he mentions drunkenness. You know, wine is a constant symbol of God's good blessing to his people throughout the Old Testament. But when we abuse something that is good, it can become sinful. This word refers to excessive drinking that causes someone to lose good judgment and self-control. Drunkenness is a work of the flesh. should be you know, understood. Do not go there. Revelries, partying hard, getting hung over, splurging on sensual pleasure with a bunch of other fleshly pleasure seekers. Peter says that that was something that was part of your past life. 1 Peter 4, 3 says this, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, that's the same word Paul uses here, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They're saying, why don't you go to our parties anymore? <laughs> What's wrong with you? And you say, um, it's not something that's wrong with me, it's something that's right with me, right? Um, I, I now know Jesus, and I've been set free, and I'm a lot happier, so I don't want to go to those things anymore. How about you come to church with me, right? <laughs> and 
And then he ends the list of the works of the flesh by saying, and the like. You know, sin has a multitude of manifestations, right? He only lists 17 things, but we could list, I don't know how many things. There's a whole lot of things. But Paul is saying it's all bondage. And we are not to fulfill its lust, but rather through love serve one another. And the way you do that is, here's the contrast, being filled with God's Spirit. So what is the opposite of the works of the flesh? The opposite of the works of the flesh is the fruit of the Spirit. Now up to this point in Galatians, Paul has been using that word works often. He's shown how the works of the law are inadequate and can be a hindrance to understanding what it means to be justified freely by God's grace. We saw uh, last week he list, um, you know, uh, the works of the law. Well, and, and here we're seeing he work, lists the works of the flesh, all sinful things. Well, in contrast to the concept of work, Paul develops an idea of Christian holiness that is not a work, but that is a fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is something that is natural. Fruit is something that is organic. Fruit is something that is living and vital. Fruit is something that is dependent on another source in order to grow. And not only that, but it is not a fruit of man's goodness. It's not a fruit of you and me. It is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So what is interesting is that while Paul uses plural works for talking about the works of the flesh, he only uses the singular fruit when talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It is almost as if Paul is stressing that the life of holiness that he is about to describe is something that is received as a whole package. You know, every Christian possesses all of the fruit of the Spirit. You know that? So you can't say, oh, uh, gentleness, that one's not for me, right? Patience, no, that one's for my husband. That one's not for me, right? Um, you know, joy, maybe in heaven, but right now I'm going to be sad, right? No, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the fruit singular, all of the fruit of the Spirit. That's different from the gifts of the Spirit. Gifts, that's plural, right? Gifts. And Paul explicitly says that we all don't have the same gifts, right? We don't have all of the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe at some point someone's walked in most of the gifts of the Spirit or something like that, but we all have different gifts to serve one another. Well, it's different with the fruit of the Spirit. All of us have all of the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because we're all connected to divine Jesus. And this is what Jesus said about himself in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Dwelling, abiding, remaining in and with Christ will naturally cause us to bear much fruit. The Christian life then becomes not so much a work, whereby we're attempting to check off all the boxes so that God is not mad at us, but rather, life that has been conformed to the life of Christ uh, will naturally uh, live out the attributes of that life inside of them. So, um, you know, we want, we want to so much abide in Christ, and we have the fruit of Christ's life exhibited in us, all the things we're about to read here, that people can say about us what they said about Peter and John at the temple. These guys have been with Jesus. So look what Ephesians 5 says in verse 8. Paul says something similar to that community. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful what? Works of darkness, the works of the flesh, but rather expose them. Have no fellowship with works of the flesh, expose them, but rather, um, you know, as children of light, what you want to do is have the fruit of the Spirit. So, you know, as we spend time in song, as we spend time in prayers, we spend time in the Word, as we spend time fellowshipping with the Lord, we are in an environment that will not only help expose the unfruitful works of darkness in our life and around us, but that will develop and mature the fruits of the light. Do trees or vines struggle to produce fruit? No, it is natural. As long as they are in a healthy environment, they will produce fruit. It is their nature to do so. Same with the Christian. Don't think of the fruit of the Spirit as a struggle. Think of it as the natural outflow of spending time with the Lord. For all of the fruits of the Spirit, as we see each and every one of them, is an aspect of God's own character. So when God says, these are the fruit of the Spirit, He's saying, these are character qualities of my own eternal life. And that's why they are to be manifest in your life. So let's read them. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, nine things. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk, also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's not do the works of the flesh stuff anymore like you guys are doing. You're biting and devouring one another and there's conflict. No, let's, um, let's live by the Spirit. So let's look at these nine things. Love is the first. It's the fountainhead of all the rest. In fact, John says in John 4, verse 8 and verse 16 that God is love. More than anything else, this really defines the character of God. And so what is going to be the first fruit in the life of the Christian? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another, right? Is love. We should be loving people. We should love like Jesus loved. However he interacted with people, and you could read the Gospels, he interacted a lot of way. We should follow that example because that is the loving thing to do. The second fruit is what? Joy. You know, again, this is a character quality of God. Right before Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins in the upper room, this is what he said in John 15, 11. After he says, I'm the true vine, he says this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Why do we have the fruit of joy? Because Christ's joy is in us, right? <laughs> Christ is the vine and we are the branches. He is the source of our joy. We have the joy of Jesus. And he was so joyful to birth us at the cross. Okay? He's really, he was really excited about that. Number three, peace. Just like love and joy are character qualities of God, so is the peace. You, we don't have our own peace. The fruit of peace we have is the peace of Jesus. In that same speech, in the upper room, Jesus said this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We have God's love, we have God's joy, we have God's peace. 
right? So all those works of the flesh that are not peaceful, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, dissensions, divisions, well, guess what? We have God's wholeness and well-being, his shalom. We have his peace, we have the peace of Jesus. So we don't have to engage in that, um, that demonic crap. Number four, we have long-suffering. <laughs> Patience, yeah. Patience, wow. Patience is one of those themes in the Bible that's talked about over and over again. We need to really dig into the subject of patience. But you know, one thing about patience is that that too is an aspect of who God is. God is a patient God. In fact, in 2 Peter, when people are wondering why Christ is taking so long to come back, Peter says God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. You know that? So, patience is always tied to hope. One reason we can be patient is because, just like God hopes for more people, right? Uh, we, we can be patient because we are people who have confident assurance that God works all things together for his good. So we don't need to worry about tomorrow. We can be patient. We can be long-suffering with people, knowing that ultimately, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The fifth fruit is what? Kindness. Kindness, again, is a character trait of God. Jesus specifically says that in his sermon on the uh, field, or the plain. In Luke 6, 35, he says this, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Why? For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. You know, the fruit of the spirit of kindness is not so you can be kind to all your friends and the people you love. No, the fruit of the spirit of kindness is so you can be kind to all the ungrateful and evil people in your life. Right? The people we don't want to be kind to. That's how you know it's God kind of kindness. What's the sixth thing? Goodness. Well, we know that's a quality of God, right? I mean, Throughout the Psalms, over and over again, it is affirmed that Yahweh is good and his mercy endures forever, right? So our lives have been planted in the goodness of the Lord so we too can be good to others, right? We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Not so we can be saved, but because we have been saved. The seventh fruit is faithfulness. Or that word can also just be faith. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness or faith. You know that faithfulness, again, is a character trait of who God is? Look what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Because God is faithful, we too can be faithful. As we spend time with him and thank him consistently for his work and blessings in our lives, we will begin to exhibit that character trait in our relationships with others. We can be faithful to our spouse. We can be faithful to our kids. We can be faithful to our friends. We can be faithful to our church. We can be faithful to our work. Why? Because God is a faithful God, and that's a fruit that he's working in us. We can be faithful people, right? Gentleness is the eighth one. You know, one thing that Jesus does is he describes his own character in Matthew 11. And he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart, right? So again, the gentleness we have is just a character quality of who God is. 
And that is the fruit that he once worked in us. He wants us to be imitators of him as dear children. So since Jesus is gentle, you know what he wants you to be? Gentle. You know what that means? You don't have outbursts of flaming wrath in the flesh, right? We can, you know, there's ways all those things are channeled correctly and rightly. But God primarily wants us to be gentle people. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know, Jesus really bends down and helps people. Number nine, self-control, the last one. Self-control. You know that even self-control is a character quality of God. In Psalms, we're told that God is slow to anger. He's in complete self-control. He knows when and how to exhibit his passion. We, too, are supposed to have self-control over our passions, to be slow to anger, just like God is slow to anger and rich in love. This is what James instructs the Christian, James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. How do you do that? Self-control. Right? And again, that's just another aspect of love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not easily angered. Right? Love is not constantly ticked off. Rather, love is self-control. So how does Paul end the letter? Chapter 6, let's read the first five verses. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So Paul ends the letter by stressing that we are called to be gracious to one another. We are to restore sinners with a spirit of gentleness. We are to bear each other's burdens. We are to be humble and not have a bloated self-perception. The law of Christ is the law of love, and love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The Christian community never has been perfect and never will be perfect. So that means we need to learn to get along. It means we need to primarily focus on our own faults, and we need to see how we can help others. We shouldn't make Christianity about ourselves and all of our frustrations with everyone else, right? So then Paul, he closes the letter like this. And let's pick up in verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these will compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
You know, in verse 15 he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. What he's saying there is it doesn't matter what we have or haven't done. What matters is that God has remade us into something new. And when we understand that principle, that we all stand or fall by the grace of our Lord Jesus, then we can begin to get along with one another and serve each other in love. Peace and mercy is upon the Israel of God. What is the Israel of God? It's the new Israel. It's the children of Abraham who are the children of faith, composed of Jews and Gentiles, walking in grace and graciousness, crucifying the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Right? That is who the Israel of God is. You are the Israel of God. I am the Israel of God. I don't have any Jewish blood that I know of in terms of fleshly Jewish blood, but I have 100% spiritual Jewish blood because I'm of the faith of Abraham. Paul ends saying this, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. His final word is grace. That's what his theme of this whole letter has been. He wanted that word ever before then. And as the grace of the Lord Jesus is with our spirit, we begin to live the life that he desires for us. A life of grace, a life of graciousness, a life of walking in the Spirit, of allowing the fruit of the Spirit to have its way, and crucifying the works of the flesh. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for everybody uh, who is here this evening. Lord, I just thank you that your word has an effect in our life, Lord. Anybody who might have heard... Uh, a work of the flesh as we were going through the list here, Lord, and it just, uh, it just uh, you know, made them aware of that work in their own life. I thank you, Lord, that that work is crucified in them in Jesus' name, Lord. We just, we just put that work to death in Jesus' name, and we look to you. We turn from it, Lord. And I pray in that place, Lord, the fruit of your life, the fruit of your spirit would be abundant in each and every heart and each and every life here this morning, Lord. So we thank you for your grace. And we thank you that your grace enables us to be gracious people, loving people, people who walk in your spirit, Lord, to one another. In Jesus' name, amen? Well, before you're dismissed, um, there is one announcement. Uh, the Valentine's, for those coming to the Valentine's event this Saturday, it is a, uh, I was told you can dress up for it. So, not necessarily tuxedo or whatever, but, you know, dress nice, whatever. Some people are going to be dressing nice. You might want to dress nice. That's what I've been told. All right. Um, no ladies group, right? Not this week? No ladies group tomorrow, but there is men's as of now. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll send out the men's text out here, let you guys know. And uh, otherwise, um, next Wednesday night is our worship night, so come out and worship with us. It's always wonderful. Uh, Leroy will be here, and uh, the whole worship team, uh, or a lot of the worship team will be out here. If anyone needs prayer for anything, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Amen? Uh, so God love you. God bless you. Have a good night. Amen?